We are going to read this morning from Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17. And the New Testament reading will be Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Exodus 2, 12 through 17. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to the New Testament. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things." And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In our journey through the Ten Commandments, I've repeatedly reminded you that the first four commandments tell us about the love we ought to have for God, and the last six commandments tell us about the love we ought to have for other people. As you know, this is how Jesus summarized the law. Quoting from the writings of Moses, He said, "...you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind." This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This passage from Christ, um, quoted from the Old Testament, has been very important to us in our interpretation of, of the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. We see that really this law, uh, the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments, is about love. Properly understood, these commandments move us to love God with all that we are. These commandments move us to love our neighbor as ourself. They tell us how we are to do it in this world. Indeed, we love God when we obey all of His commandments. But it is clear that the first four of the Ten Commandments are about the love and honor we are to show to God, whereas the commandments uh, numbers 5 through 10 are about the love and honor we are to show God. To our fellow man. The fifth commandment establishes that honor is to be shown to all people. The command to honor your father and mother requires us to preserve the honor and perform the duties belonging to everyone in their various places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. That is Baptist Catechism 69. So honor is to be shown to all who bear the image of God. This is the head commandment of the second table of the moral law. The sixth commandment teaches us to honor life as it pertains to its end. The command, you shall not murder, 
forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends thereunto. Baptist Catechism 74. Again, I say the sixth commandment teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to the end of it. The seventh commandment teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to its beginning. Human life is brought into this world through the process of procreation. And God has designed the human race to procreate in this way through the physical union of a man and woman joined together in the covenantal union of marriage. It is in the context of the lifelong covenant of marriage that human life is to be conceived, birthed, nurtured, and raised to independency. The command, you shall not commit adultery, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to its beginning. Given the sacredness of the marriage bond and the weightiness of the responsibility of procreation, the seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity and heart, speech, and behavior. The eighth commandment teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to its preservation and prosperity. The Lord sustains His creatures. And and how does He do this? Indeed, we may say that... He does it in a spiritual and mysterious way. It is true that in Him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed His offspring. That is Acts 17.28. But He does also sustain us through means in this world. He gives us bread to eat, water to drink, clothes to wear. He gives us shelter from the elements. In other words, our lives are sustained by God in this world through personal property. And the Eighth Commandment, which is, "...you shall not steal." teaches us to honor human life by respecting the property of others. The Eighth Commandment forbids whatsoever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Baptist Catechism 80. Now, we come to the Ninth Commandment, which is, you shall not bear false witness. In brief, the Ninth Commandment requires us to speak the truth, And what does this have to do with honoring our fellow man? We are to speak the truth. Why are we to do this? Well, because God has said so. We are to do this because God is truth, and we are to be like Him. Deceit, lying is sin, because God has said that it is sin, and because it is contrary to His nature. Uh, That is all true. But here I am asking, what does this have to do with honoring our fellow man? Remember, these commandments are about love. They're about love for God and love for our fellow man. They're about honor given to God and honoring our fellow man. So what does this commandment, you shall not bear false witness, have to do with honoring our fellow man? What does this have to do with love for neighbor? Well, if the preceding commandments teach us to honor human life as it pertains to the end, the beginning, the physical preservation of it, the ninth commandment teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to human relations, as it pertains to human relations. Human relationships depend upon truth and trust. Where there is truth and where there is trust, human relationships are able to flourish. Where there is deceit, where there is distrust, human relationships are damaged, even destroyed. And this is true of all kinds of human relationships. We may think about this on a very large scale. Societies will flourish where truth and trust prevail. And societies will quickly fragment where there is deceit and distrust. You may think about how vital truth is to the functioning of our government, our judicial systems, our economy. Where there is truth, these institutions within society may flourish. Where there is deceit and falsehood, these institutions will rot. They will produce division. And the very same thing may be said of the smaller and more intimate institutions in society, like the church and like the family. Where there is truth and trust, relationships within these institutions are able to flourish. Where there is deceit and distrust, Relationships within these institutions will languish. We live in a fallen world, friends. I don't need to tell you that, do I? You can see it all around you. You know this to be true from the Holy Scriptures. And because we live in a fallen world, 
We will always have to work through challenging situations with each other. It's inevitable. We will have to work through challenging situations with each other. We will experience afflictions of various kinds. We will struggle with the consequences of our own sin. We will offend one another. We will disagree with one another. In other words, friction is unavoidable in human relationships now that we are fallen. Truth and love are vital. It is truth and love which enable human relationships to function and even flourish despite the friction that is unavoidable because of our sin. Here is an analogy for you. What oil is to the engine of your car, truth is to every human relationship. What will happen if you drain the oil from the engine of your car and then you start it up? It may start for a moment, it may run, it will not run smoothly. Eventually it will seize, it will seize because the friction within that engine will prove to be too much. And I am saying that the very same thing is true of all human relationships. If human relationships are to function, if they are to flourish, there must be truth and trust. Trust is the fruit of truth. Trust is something that is earned over time. It can be quickly lost. It can also be regained. All human relationships depend upon truth and trust. And I am saying that trust is the fruit of truth. It is that the oil to the human relationship, you see. It is the thing that helps us to to work through the difficulties of life, the friction of life, the disagreements that arise amongst us. We can work through them if we are honest with one another, if we are truthful, if we trust one another, if we love one another. As a father, I have from time to time lectured my children about this. I've said, tell me the truth, son, or tell me the truth, daughter. We can work through just about anything, but I have to trust you. I have to trust you. Without truth and trust, this relationship here, it just can't function. Everything breaks down without truth and trust. I've also appealed to the goodness of the thing, saying things like this to them. Believe me, when you are a teenager, you're going to want me to trust you. You're going to want me to trust you. Trust will produce freedom. It will lead to freedom. It will lead to many good things, privileges for you. And you can see how this works in a parent child relationship. That's not difficult to see. Where there is truth and trust, you can work through anything in a family. Truth and trust produce freedom. There's, there's life that comes as a result of it. There's an abundance of life there. And here I am saying that it's true of every human relationship within every institution in society. Where there is truth and trust, there is freedom and liveliness. Where there is deceit and distrust, relationships are damaged, even destroyed. I've said what oil is to the engine of your car, truth and trust are to every human relationship. And before moving on from that idea, I want to draw your attention back to that Ephesians 4 passage that was read at the beginning of this sermon, so that you may see that Paul spoke of truth in the same way. There in Ephesians 4, Paul was exhorting the church in Ephesus to be unified. In other words, he was addressing their relationships with one another. In verse 1, we read, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord... Um, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The the yous here are are plural. He's writing to the members of the church of Ephesus and urging them to walk worthily together. I continue quoting Paul now. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So you can see uh, that if we are going to live in harmony with one another in this world, even in the church... If we are to have healthy and God-honoring relationships with one another, we must be humble, we must be gentle, we must be patient, we must be forbearing, we must have love in our hearts for one another. Uh, This is true especially because of the sin that we struggle with. Uh, We must have these qualities in our hearts if we are to live in harmony with one another. Now in verse 15 after warning them of being tossed to and fro by false doctrines, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. 
The truth that Paul speaks of here is first and foremost the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, as contrasted with the false doctrines that were prevalent in that day. But I think he is also speaking of truth even in a more general sense. How were the Ephesians to relate to one another? How were they to walk worthily and be unified together in Christ? They were to do this while speaking the truth in love to one another. Where there is truth spoken in love, there is unity and there is peace. Where there is false doctrine, where there is human cunning, where there is craftiness and where there is deceitful schemes, people are tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea. They are carried off in this way and that. Human relationships, brothers and sisters, cannot flourish without truth and without love. This is true in the church. As I've said, it's true in every human institution within society. Now with that as a kind of big picture introduction, I wish to ask the specific question, what does the ninth commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness, forbid and require? As has been my custom, I will use trustworthy catechisms to help us. First, our catechism, the Baptist catechism. Please listen carefully to the questions and answers. What is required in the ninth commandment? Our catechism asks. Answer, the ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness-bearing. What is forbidden in the ninth commandment? Answer, the ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Notice three things about these questions and answers. One, on the most basic level, the ninth commandment requires us to promote truth between man and man. Anything that promotes what is false is a violation of the ninth commandment. It is sin. Anything that promotes what is false is a violation of the ninth commandment. It is sin. Two, our catechism draws special attention to the importance of maintaining our own and our neighbor's good name. When we tell lies or when we live a life of deceit, we bring shame to our own name. And when we tell lies about others, we shame their name. In other words, we do damage to our own reputation and the reputation of others when we lie and when we deceive. And we must see that a good reputation is a very precious thing. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. That's a beautiful statement. A good reputation is a precious thing. And the ninth commandment requires us to speak truth so that we ourselves might have a good and trustworthy reputation, and so that we do not do damage to others' reputation. Uh, perhaps later today you can reflect upon this and see how prevalent this problem is within our society. Men and women are slandered constantly, and damage is done to their reputations. It is a terrible evil. It is a violation of the ninth commandment. Three, our catechism emphasizes the special importance of truthfulness in witness-bearing. We're to picture here courts of one kind or another, uh, civil courts, judicial courts, maybe even ecclesiastical courts. Whenever you are called to bear witness to some situation, it is especially important that, that you bear uh, true witness and not false witness then. Our yes should mean yes and our no, no should mean no always, but it is especially important that our yes be yes and our no be no when bearing witness in some kind of civil or ecclesiastical matter. Why? Because the stakes are so high. As you know, the lives and livelihoods of men and women can be taken away unjustly through false witnesses. And so we are always to promote the truth. Always and in every way we are to promote the truth. But especially when we are called to bear witness to some important matter within society or within the church. I'll read now the Westminster Larger Catechism. It is larger. It is longer. Be patient here, but think carefully about what is said. I will not elaborate much on the Westminster Larger Catechism. I think it speaks for itself. Again, I say the Westminster Larger is very helpful because of its thoroughness. Question 144. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? 
The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them, discouraging tale-bearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. There's a very beautiful explanation of what the ninth commandment requires of us. You see that this goes way beyond simply not telling lies. We are to think what is true. We are to speak what is true. We are to do what is true in each and every situation of life. Westminster Catechism 145 asks, what are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? A very long answer is found here. I would encourage you to read it on your own time. It is, it is a very powerful statement that is made here. Perhaps I could pick up in the middle of it, though, um, and, and read it to you. We are to speak the truth always, brothers and sisters. Never are we to tell a lie. The ninth commandment forbids us from even speaking untruth, from lying, from slandering, from backbiting, from detracting, from tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstruing intentions, words and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovery of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports and stopping our ears against just defense. I could go on. I've read just a portion of it so as to give you a sense of what's there. Indeed, the ninth commandment, when properly understood and properly applied, forbid and require much of us. Brothers and sisters, please make use of these catechisms. The Baptist Catechism I've read, also Westminster, larger and shorter. I've read these to you because they are such rich resources. There's so much here to, 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 to see and to recognize and to glean from. I can't take the time to do it. In general, the Ninth Commandment is not only about not telling lies. The Ninth Commandment is about living a life of truth and of love. We must, again, think what is true, feel what is true, speak what is true, and do what is true. That is what is required of us here. Lastly, I will read from another catechism that we should happily call our own, called the Orthodox Catechism. It is a Baptist revision of the Heidelberg Catechism compiled by Hercules Collins in the 17th century. Question 130 asks, What is God's will for you in the Ninth Commandment? And the Orthodox, like the Heidelberg, is beautiful in its, I think, devotional flavor. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses and they would call down on me God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it, and I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. A wonderful statement concerning the Ninth Commandment. Well, I think you understand what the Ninth Commandment is, what it requires and forbids, and I'll begin to move this sermon toward a conclusion by offering some suggestions for application followed by 
a gospel contemplation. I have many suggestions for applications, so the conclusion will not come too quickly. But we are heading there. (laughs) I'll deliver the suggestions for application under three headings. All who have faith in Christ, whose sins have been washed away, whose hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, and whose minds are being renewed by the truth of God's Word, must obey the ninth commandment, one, in thought, two, in word, and three, in deed. Brothers and sisters, if we are to keep the ninth commandment really and truly, we must first think what is true. We must love what is true in the heart. You cannot speak the truth or live a life that is true if you do not first think what is true. We must think what is true. Thinking what is true begins with submitting to God and to His Word. What is truth? We say God is truth. Indeed, that is what John 3.33 says. God is truth. We must submit ourselves to Him and to His Word. The Word of God is truth. That is what John 17.17 says. So if we hope to live a life that is true in word and in deed, then we must begin by submitting ourselves to God and His Word. We must first receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save our souls. That is James 1.21. Living a life of truth begins with thinking what is true. And to do this, we must submit ourselves to God, who is truth, and to His Word, that is truth. Stated negatively, to believe a lie is to live a lie. To believe a lie is to live a lie. There is a sense in which those who believe what is false live a life that is false. Though they may tell the truth from time to time, or perhaps even very often, they live a life of falsehood because they have not submitted themselves to the reality of who God is, who they are in relation to Him, and of His purpose for them. Have you ever contemplated this? There are some who might be very honest people. They tell the truth often, or maybe even always, and yet they are living a lie because they have not submitted themselves to the truth of God, of His Word, of who they are in this world, of what His will is for them. The whole of their life is a life of falsehood, therefore. They've believed a lie, and they live a lie, because they live not for the glory of God, but for some other purpose. Those who have not submitted themselves to God and His Word through faith in Christ live according to falsehood. And this is bondage of the worst kind. I know we are complex creatures, brothers and sisters, and sometimes we struggle mentally and emotionally for for lots of reasons. I do not mean to be simplistic here, but I do sometimes wonder if folks don't struggle mentally and emotionally so severely because they are living a life of falsehood. Their view of God, their view of the world, their view of themselves, their view of their purpose in this life is so distorted that it drives them mad. Brothers and sisters, if we are to live a life of truth, speak the truth and do the truth, we must believe what is true. This is why Jesus spoke to those who believed in Him this way, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is freedom found in the truth. But first we must believe it. First we must believe it in the mind and in the heart. We must know who God is, who we are. We must understand His plans and purposes for us through faith in the Savior He has provided. So to live a life that is true, we must first first submit to the truth of God, His Word, and His Christ. And we must be sanctified progressively by the truth throughout our lives. How do we come to be saved? By believing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we grow or mature in Christ? It is through the truth of God's word as the Spirit works. In John 17, we have a record of the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father on behalf of those that the Father gave to Him. And in verse 17, He prays this way, saying, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. How do we come to be sanctified? How do we come to maturity? How are we made more holy in the Christian life? It is through the truth of God's Word. The truth of God, His Word, and His Gospel must be believed at the beginning of the Christian life and also throughout. We must be careful to fill our minds with the truth of God's Word as the Lord refines us and keeps us. Paul warns us to not be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The world wishes to press us into its mold. The world wants for us to think the way that it thinks. 
But we are to not be conformed to the world. Instead, we are to be transformed continuously by the Spirit of God through the renewal of our minds. The Word of God is to be received by us. It is to be believed by us and treasured by us so that we are transformed by it. In another place, Paul the Apostle says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's a powerful passage there in Philippians 4.8. You have a choice to think about what you think about. You are, not, you are not a victim to your thoughts. You are not a victim to your emotions, brothers and sisters. You have a choice to make regarding what it is that you contemplate. And here Paul is laying this exhortation upon the church of Philipp, the Philippians saying, Choose to think upon what is true, what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is excellent. You must know the truth and you must choose to dwell upon the truth, to, to meditate upon the truth, to contemplate the truth. These are the thoughts that are to rattle through your head, thoughts that are true. These are positive exhortations coming to us. From the Apostle, in the Scriptures we also find warnings not to believe the lies of the evil one. In John 8, Jesus confronts those who do not receive Him, saying, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me, Jesus says. So here is a stern warning not to believe the lies of the evil one, but instead to believe the truth that is in Christ Jesus. We must choose to do this, brothers and sisters, to fill our minds with things that are true. You can see that in this world there is truth and there are lies. God is truth, His word is truth, and the evil one is a liar and the father of lies. What will you fill your mind with? That is the question. What will you believe? Will you, you will act upon what you believe, friends. That is what I want you to see. You will speak based upon what it is that you believe. Your words and your actions come from somewhere. Your words and actions come from the heart. They come from the mind. So fill your heart and mind with God's Word. Learn to think rightly about God. Learn to think rightly about the world that God has made and your place in it. Develop wisdom. Develop discernment. Grow in your knowledge of the truth. All the while, beware of the lies of the evil one. Beware of the lies that he speaks to your own mind and soul. You've experienced this. You do not hear his voice audibly. But he tempts you this way. He speaks lies to you. He tries to convince you that God does not love you. That God is not in control. That God does not know what he's doing. He tries to convince you that God is against you, that God is not to be trusted or loved. So beware of how He speaks to your own mind and soul. Beware of the lies that He speaks to you through others. It's good to have others in our lives that we confide in and who give us advice. But do not take the advice of others in an undiscerning way. Everything must be tested according to the Word of God. Beware of the lies that He speaks to you through the culture, through propaganda, through the way of the world, brothers and sisters. Do not mindlessly digest the ways of the world and believe everything that you hear from culture. We are not to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed through the renewal of our mind as we submit ourselves to God and to His Word. The truth of God's Word must be stored up and treasured in the mind and in the heart. Secondly, those in Christ who have been washed by His blood and regenerated by the Spirit must speak the truth in love. We must think what is true. We also must speak what is true. We must speak the truth in love. First of all, do not lie, brothers and sisters. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no. Speak the truth instead. Bring the truth of God's Word to bear upon the situations you encounter in life. Tell the truth about yourself and others. Two, do not distort the truth in any way by telling half-truths or by playing with words. Again, I say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Let your speech be plain and clear and direct. Indeed, we must be very careful with the tongue, knowing how powerful it is. Our words can be used for great good and for great evil. Our words should be few, therefore. I think this is something we need to contemplate. Our words should be few. Some people like to talk a lot. They just have that personality, and and that is fine. I'm not criticizing those who have an outgoing personality. I'm not saying that we must all be very uh, reserved and shy. Uh, But realize this. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The more we speak, the more danger we are in to fall into sin. And so we must be careful with our words. We must be careful not to distort the truth in any way by telling half-truths or by playing with words. Three, we are to speak the truth in love, and this also requires us to listen truthfully. Hmm. We're to speak the truth in love, and this also requires us to listen truthfully. This is what the Westminster Larger Catechism is referring to when it forbids misconstruing intentions, words, and actions. In other words, we are to listen to others carefully, and we are to not twist their words and misconstrue their intentions to hold it against them. Uh, This is a very dishonest thing that men and women do. When they listen to others but not carefully, or when they listen to them with the intent of twisting what is said in order to use it against them somehow. Four, speaking the truth in love forbids all gossip and all slander. We gossip when we speak of others in the wrong place. It is possible to say what is true about someone but to be guilty of gossip. It is possible to say what is true about someone but to be guilty of gossip. What we say might be factually true but we are guilty of gossip when we say it to those who do not need to know. And so I am saying, beware of the sin of gossip, brothers and sisters. You should ask yourself the question, does this person need to know this? Do they need to know it? Is it their business? Are they in some danger and therefore they need to know? Are they in a position to help and therefore need to know? Do they have some responsibility to act in this situation and therefore need to know? Is their counsel absolutely necessary to me. I think there is a place for that, to tell people what you're going through so that they might offer counsel. But oftentimes that situation is used as an excuse for gossip. Do they absolutely need to know this so that I might receive their counsel? By the way, if you need counsel from others, it may be that you should go to certain people to receive that counsel. Maybe those who have been entrusted with leadership within the church for Example. Also, when you're seeking counsel, you could do it in such a way so as to not gossip against another. You can receive the counsel you, you need while simultaneously protecting the reputation of another person. These are the kinds of questions that we should ask when determining if information about others is, needs to be shared. If the person does not need to know, then don't share it. If the person does not need to know, then don't share the information. We are to speak the truth in love, and we know that love covers a multitude of sins. That is 1 Peter 4.8. And Peter is there quoting from the Old Testament, though I've forgotten the reference. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Does this mean that sin is to be ignored? Does this mean that sin is to go unconfronted? No, that is not the point. But it does mean that our impulse should be to cover the sin of others with grace instead of magnifying it. So if someone else has sinned against you, or if they are living in sin as a brother or sister in Christ, it may be your place to go to them and to speak to them about it. But we are here saying, don't go to others and speak to them about the sin of another person so that sin is magnified, so that sin is amplified. Love covers a multitude of sins. If we love one another, our impulse will be not to expose one another and not to shame one another, but instead to cover the sin and then to deal with the sin in an appropriate way, a God-honoring way, a way that protects the reputation of your brother and sister in Christ. 
I think that is what is meant here. If a brother is caught in some sin, we must confront it in love and with humility. If there is no repentance, others are to be involved. Eventually it must be told to the church. We know all about Matthew chapter 18. But nowhere in that process is gossip appropriate. Do you hear me? Nowhere in that process is gossip ever appropriate. Slander is similar to gossip, but it is slightly different. We slander when we say things about others that are untrue, partially true, unfounded, misleading, to the detriment of the person's reputation. That is what slander is. We should mind our business, brothers and sisters. If we must say something about others, we should only say what we know to be true. I think slander and gossip are both big problems in our culture. They could also be big problems within the church as well. Let's think carefully about these things. We should mind our business, brothers and sisters. And if we must say something about others, we should only say what we know can be to, to be true. I'm putting the stress upon the word know. Do not say what you suspect to be true, as if it is true. Do not say what you think might be true, but only what you know to be true. But now you must put them all away, Paul says. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3. 8 through 10. Speaking the truth in love requires us to say only that which is true and to say it to the right people, in the right place, at the right time, with the right words, and in the right way. By way, I mean tone. That is what is required to speak the truth in love. You can hear me placing the emphasis upon the words in love right now. If we are to speak the truth in love, we must speak the truth in this manner. Fifthly, If we wish to keep the ninth commandment in word, we must also speak up for the truth when we are in a position to do so. Oftentimes, keeping the ninth commandment will require us to refrain from saying that which is false. But sometimes, keeping the ninth commandment will require us to say what is true. We violate the ninth commandment when we have an opportunity and especially an obligation to speak the truth, but we remain quiet. Sometimes it is needed for us to speak up so as to defend the honor of another, so as to uphold justice, so as to defend those who are being abused perhaps, and we violate the ninth commandment when we fail to speak, when it is in our place and power to do so. The third and last category for suggested application is this. Those in Christ who have been washed by His blood and regenerated by the Spirit must obey the ninth commandment in deed, in thought, in word, and in deed. And here I mean that we must live lives that are true and unhypocritical. We must live lives that are true and unhypocritical. So we are to live according to the truth, brothers and sisters. We are to live in light of who God is. We're to live in obedience to Him. We're to live trusting in Christ who died for our sins and rose again for our salvation. And we are to be true to God and to our profession of faith in every aspect of our life. We must be sure to be one person and not two or three. Are you following me here? You say, this is a strange application. We are to not bear false witness. Isn't that about what we say or what we fail to say? Yes, but here I am saying we are to live a life that is true, a life that is authentic, a life that is genuine, a life that is not misleading simply by the way that we conduct ourselves. I, I think this is especially common uh, for young people whose faith may be immature. Perhaps they have not developed the courage or the conviction to be true to God and to His Word in every arena of, of life. And so they find themselves in situations where they're being pressured perhaps by peers or by their surroundings and they begin to act in a way that they would never act in the home. They would never act this way in the church, but they find themselves acting in an evil way in another setting, around their peers, perhaps. This is what I am here saying we must avoid. We cannot be two or three different types of people where we pretend to be one way here when, in fact, we're another way over here. That's deceptive, is it not? Uh, Here I am saying that you live a lie when you live that way. 
You might not tell a lie, but you live a lie when you live in that hypocritical, two-faced kind of way. I am saying that the ninth commandment forbids this. We must think what is true, speak what is true, and also live a life that is true. We are to not be tossed to and fro by the pressures of our peers or by the pressures of Applied to us from the culture, we must be found faithful and true, true to God and true to our profession of faith in Christ always. I think the ninth commandment requires this. I'll make one last suggestion for application concerning this theme of genuineness and sincerity. Um, And this might seem like a stretch to you, but I don't think that it is. I wish to especially warn you, brothers and sisters, to be careful with social media. Be careful with social media. In fact, be careful with everything digital and with everything virtual. It is so very easy to get lost in that world and to detach from reality. This temptation is not going to diminish, it's going to increase in the years and decades to come. It is so easy to get lost in that world and to pretend to be something you're not, you see. Think about what you post online. Think about the pictures you share, the things that you say. It's so easy to give the impression that you are something you are not, you know. And it's a form of deceit, I think. It's a form of deception, People misrepresent themselves constantly in that virtual world. And as the virtual world grows, it is going to grow, brothers and sisters. I'm sure you've heard of this. Uh, The development of the the metaverse, you know, this this world that you can create for, for yourself online and through virtual reality helmets. I mean, you can create a life for yourself. Think of how tempting that is, by the way. If you are discontented with your life on earth, Think of how appealing it is to have this ability to create a life for yourself in that virtual world and to live in that world while disconnecting from reality. You live a lie. You live a lie doing that. So we must be very careful with this world. I know that uh, probably many within this church uh, engage on social media and, and live to some degree in the the digital world and love to play games and all of these things. But would you step back from that for a moment and just think about the dangers that are present there as it pertains to the ninth commandment. When you're there, it is especially, uh, you're especially prone to, to disconnect from reality and live not according to the truth of who God is and who you are in this world that He has made, but according to a fantasy that you have created for yourself. So let us be careful there, even when it comes to social media and the virtual world that is ever developing. Now, for a brief gospel contemplation. In our consideration of the moral law of God, we must not forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you the question, have you kept this law, that is the ninth commandment properly understood perfectly, all should say, I have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. The law condemns sinners as guilty. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That is is Romans 8 1 through 4. This is good news. The law does not condemn the one who is united to Christ by faith. For Christ has kept the law for us. He paid for our sins. He was raised in victory. But the Spirit of God does still use the law of God to convict the Christian. There is a difference between condemnation and conviction. The Spirit of God does still use the law of God to convict the Christian. God uses His law Not as a judge to condemn us, but as a loving Father to discipline us. 
For by His grace we are His beloved children through adoption. God disciplines those He loves. Aren't you thankful for that? Perhaps you have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we have progressed through our contemplation of God's moral law. If you feel that conviction, that is a sign of God's love for you. He disciplines those He loves. So then, being found in Christ and being convicted of sin, we must turn from it and to Christ again and again. We are to use the law as a light to our path. We must obey it, brothers and sisters. We must obey it. We must obey it not in our own strength, but with the strength God provides. We must obey it not out of a slavish fear, but out of gratitude towards God for His mercy and grace. We must obey God's law not to earn God's love and His favor, but because His love and favor have been freely bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. He has washed us. He has also renewed us. And now we must walk in the newness of life that is ours in Him. Romans 6.3 says, and with this we close, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, do help us to walk in this newness of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have freed us from the rigor and curse of the law. We are no longer condemned. We've been forgiven. We thank you also that the Holy Spirit has written this law, the moral law of God, upon our hearts by regeneration. We thank you that you, God, use your word and spirit to convict us of sin where it is present. Lord, may we not fight against you as your children, but may we submit to you. May we humbly turn from our sins and to Christ again and again, relying upon him for the strength we need to live in obedience to you. Lord, help us to tell the truth. Help us to believe the truth, to tell the truth and to live a life of truth before you. May we be found faithful for our good and the glory of your name. And all of God's people say, Amen.